This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 7th of June 2016, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data. My name is Dave, and here is my fabulous co-host, Jon. Hi, Dave. Thanks for the announcement. <laughs> You're very welcome. So, what have you been up to for the last couple of weeks? Ah, I've been very busy. I'm still getting uh, my head around my new job, of course. So a lot of training, a lot of uh, watching videos, actually, about training. Yep. And watching videos about training or watching videos well, about training? Well, on training. Training videos, okay? Okay. Always a stickler for correctness, aren't you? Anyway, I'm learning a lot of things around Hadoop. Uh, in my previous uh, occupation, I was very focused, just as you are still today, uh, on Hadoop itself, the, the ecosystem inside the Hadoop umbrella. In my new job, I really have to go around and above and uh, yeah, see the whole thing around it as well. I'm also working with smaller sizes of data where Hadoop really isn't that good of an issue. But a lot of the same uh, elements, same technologies come in there as well. I mean, things like machine learning, streaming, it's part of a whole bigger thing than just Hadoop. So I'm getting uh, my head around uh, how to think in those little base <laughs> just sometimes hard because i still have the in the the automatic instinct of going to a full-blown hadoop cluster when sometimes it's not totally needed so it's it's a lot of fun really it's all and what else uh, well very practically actually i'm uh, preparing a, a machine learning predictive analytics hackathon for a customer using the azure tools so using the cortana and hc insight probably although their data set isn't that big so maybe we don't need hc insight which is the uh, hadoop solution on uh, as you call it, on Azure, of course. So we're really getting our hands dirty now. And uh, it's very busy, very hectic all. <laughs> and you, what have you been doing? Um, so last couple of weeks, um, Strata uh, was held, uh, Strata Europe was held in London. Uh, so I spent some time there. That was uh, June 1st through 3rd. And uh, good event, really good event. Uh, attended, you know, managed to catch some of the sessions uh, I look forward to some of the sessions being available online afterwards uh, and catching up on some of the ones that uh, I didn't get a chance to go to. One thing I did notice is that um, it, it's quite the the agenda is quite uh, wide, uh, and when I say that, I mean you know there are something like um, eight sessions running uh, or nine sessions even running simultaneously. So there's actually there's a very significant chance. That you know you'll 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 want to see a couple of things that are actually you know competing for time slots to each other. It's always I find find this a real challenge. If you don't have enough differentiation between the tracks, yeah. then often you you get stuck in a situation where there's lots of things happening simultaneously, and that that definitely struck me with uh, with this particular event. Um, I think the, they could have done a bit better job of organizing some of the sessions so that, you know, the kinds of tracks that people want to follow would have been uh, easier for them with less overlap. But, you know, that's that's just the way it goes. Yeah, but even with different tracks, sometimes me as a person from technical interests, I want to see a certain business uh, talk because it's a company I like or I'm interested in something. So even having multiple tracks doesn't really, or multiple really defined tracks doesn't really solve the problem either. Yeah, if you're going it that doesn't wide. solve it. You're right. It, it helps is all mm. I would say though. I don't know. Maybe we should tack on a couple of extra days and have less uh, tracks at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's about finding that balance, isn't it? I mean, you need to find a balance so that people go from one session to the next and get, you know, really good stuff each time. You know, there's not like big holes in the day where they go, oh, I don't, I don't really want to see any of these. Mm, you want to make sure. sure people get 
kind of productive use out of their time. But at the same time, you know. And also the subject matter for Strata is a lot larger than, for example, Hadoop Summit, right? Hadoop Summit is very very specific about Hadoop. Strata is what, would you say, big data or even wider than that? Uh, I would say, yeah, it's it's definitely um, the wider big data ecosystem. Yeah, that, of course, gives a lot more topics to talk about, more sessions, and then you get into this mess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true enough, true enough. Uh, now, we didn't do any uh, same-day recordings for that uh, event for the simple reason that I wasn't there, and Dave just doesn't know how to record a podcast, right? That's absolutely true, yeah. I, you know, I, I have, it's all fingers and thumbs when it comes to me and technology. <laughs> I, I just talk about it. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, that's, but it was, it was a good event. Uh, I, as I say, caught a couple of sessions that I quite enjoyed. Um, the thing I was going, uh, I was heading towards was actually that if somebody wants to pay me to go to Strata to do recordings, I'm totally available and ready to do that. Yeah. If someone would like to pay me just to record a podcast, I'd be happy to do that as well. So no, 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 yeah. that's me. That's my job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Anyway. Um, so that was Strata. That was good. Um, then the, um, the week sort of following that, uh, really kind of doing final preparation for a fairly in-depth, uh, one day security workshop. Uh, this is with a customer that we've been working with for, uh, over two years. Um, and for the last six months, um, steadily ramping up stuff on security. So we're now into some, some fairly in-depth pieces. We're looking at, um, also the longer term, uh, future of, uh, where, where big data and security and Hadoop are heading. Um, some of the things on the horizon, uh, actually taking some input from, you know, what this particular customer wants to achieve to see how we can work that into the, uh, medium to long-term roadmap as well. So, Quite uh, interesting stuff. We're sort of beyond the the basics of you know Kerberos and encryption and uh, all that sort of stuff, and we're sort of into the uh, the wild blue yonder. So that was it was pretty good. Um, and delivering that workshop next week, so that should be uh, pretty interesting. Uh, final things. Uh, I spent some time fighting with Kafka. Um, there's yeah, a what's new? A, yeah. Oh god. Hate Kafka. No, I don't hate Kafka quite as much as I hate iTunes. So, you know, go figure. Um, uh, but they're both hideous to use. <laughs> uh, but in this particular case, it's uh, you know there's a, a proof of concept environment for a particular customer, and it was just thoroughly broken. You know, the the, the queues had filled up, the disks had filled. Um, you know, no one had been curating it, and uh, yeah, it just got into an awful state. Wouldn't start. So yeah kind of fixing that uh, now and again when I have a spare moment to go and dive into it and take a look at it has has taken, uh, let's just say, more time than I would have ideally liked it to. <laughs> but uh, that's pretty much on the mend now and uh, should be all good for uh, a, a big big demo and a final push. And then we can sort of draw a line under that and do things properly in production. Uh, just out of interest, I mean, you say you spent quite a bit of time fixing the Kafka setup uh, we've been talking about NiFi a lot. Would it have taken less time to just replace the whole thing with NiFi? Well, I mean, this is one of those cases where actually Kafka made a lot of sense. And in fact, it's Kafka is being supported by NiFi. So NiFi is actually doing the data movement and data ingestion feeding Kafka. Oh, okay. Um, and then Kafka provides the publish-subscribe mechanism for various services to um, you know, uh, subscribe to data and in fact replay large chunks of data 
whenever you need to uh, as well. So it, it's one of those environments where actually they, they both fit in very well and they both have a defined use case. Okay. So that's uh, that's it for my last two weeks. Um, anything else from you, Jan? Nope, that's it for me too. All right. So uh, we plan to do uh, an episode as uh, big data for small businesses, uh, but uh, we ended up speaking to uh, some of the folks at, uh, who are behind the MLEAP project. Uh, we initially met them at uh, the Hadoop Summit in Dublin, and uh, we actually got a, a chance to interview them for the uh, the podcast and it turns out that uh, they're speaking at spark summit west today the very day that this episode is going live so we thought it'd be a great idea to sync up with their session going live our podcast going live with their interview and uh, it was all just a, a beautiful marriage so sit back and uh, enjoy us talking to holland wilkins at truecar and Mikhail Semenyuk, uh, who's currently at Shift, about the challenges of taking data science uh, from development into production and how much faster, easier, and uh, more fulfilling that would be if you used MLEAP. Enjoy. Welcome everybody to the podcast and as we promised we have an interview this time and we have two persons on the line. We have Holland Wilkins and we have Mikhail Semenyuk and please apologize if I butchered that name and I would like you to, to introduce yourselves please. Holland, you go first. Hey, uh, I'm Holland Wilkins. I'm a, a senior software engineer at TrueCar and I'm currently working on the uh, machine learning platform for them. And uh, I'm building out this cool open source project called MLEAP along with Mikhail. And that's a good segue. Mikhail, please introduce yourself. Yeah, uh, my name is Mikhail Samanek, and you actually got my name perfectly, so congrats. Um, and I head up uh, pricing and data at uh, um, a startup called Shift Technologies in San Francisco, and uh, have been working on the Emily project with Holland for about the last nine months here. Yeah, and as you can gather, MLEAP is uh, the topic of today, and we've gone much, much more depth in that uh, the rest of the interview. Uh, just one question to start with: Is it MLEAP or ML Leap? Because I've seen both uh, spellings on the web. It's it's MLEAP. Uh, the first talk that we gave, I think, was at a Spark Summit East, and uh, we registered with an extra L for whatever reason. <laughs> <laughs> just to sound more interesting. That's fine. No problem. Okay, uh, so how did you two guys meet each other and start working on this? Yeah, so I mean, we met each other uh, at TrueCar um, actually a while back, uh, maybe like five, five, six years ago, uh, when Holland was still a contractor. Uh, but then Holland up and joining full time. Um, but kind of the broader story, at least on on my end, is. Uh, so MLEAP, and we'll talk a little bit more about it later, really tries to solve the problem of deploying machine learning algorithms into production. And for myself, uh, that was kind of a challenge I encountered. Like Even as early on as you know, I graduated college, I went on to work for a company called United Health Group. Um, and my job there was to build predictive models and statistical models to essentially identify um, 
you know, individuals and patients who are most likely to end up in the emergency room or who are most likely to, um, you know, have diabetes or are misusing their drug prescriptions. And the challenge was, you know, you'd work on these models uh, and then it would essentially take months or even years to deploy them out into production. So as like a statistician, as a data scientist, I found myself writing production level pipelines to get the models out into production because, you know, you want to see them out there in the live world. Um, and then when I joined TrueCar, it was a very similar story. Um, you build these very advanced algorithms, <clears throat> you know, to predict uh, car prices, market prices. And then it's just this very long period to get them out into, into a production environment. Uh, and that's how I met Holland. And I'll let him tell his side of the story, but essentially it was kind of uh, an effort where I'd be building models and Holland would be on the other side of the table trying to take those models and deploy them in a production environment. Yeah, so um, I don't come from a data science background, but my background is more in um, implementing web APIs. And I've worked a little bit in the games industry, building concurrent game servers and uh, sort of uh, artificial intelligence for game engines and all that. And like Mikhail said, uh, one of the first projects that we worked on together was actually one of my first jobs as a, a full-time software engineer. And I was a contractor with a true car. We were building out a used pricing model and uh, uh, pretty much what we ended up doing is Mikhail flew up from Santa Monica and he had created all of this pipeline uh, and um, he pretty much told us how to implement it, all the math behind it and everything. And then we ended up implementing it first in JavaScript and Ruby. And then we decided that that wasn't fast enough. So we completely re-implemented it in Java and JRuby and it took a really long time. So that's uh that was sort of, I think, the where the seed was planted for this idea that uh, we could make this process a lot easier. Yeah, great. Now, just to take a step back, you're talking about MLeap and machine learning, and all that's based in Spark. Is that correct? Yep, yep, uh, that's correct, and that's kind of how how this evolved. So, at some point, you know, a lot of companies were making the shift into, you know, into Hadoop, the big data technologies. Um, so. Uh, we were both working at TrueCar at the same time. We invested; that company invested heavily into uh, the Hadoop ecosystem. Um, and then when Spark uh, kind of evolved, like once it started getting you know into more earlier, like more recent versions, uh, that's where we noticed this was like the perfect technology because it allows you to, to not only build data pipelines in the same language. So you know, a, a data scientist or an analyst, you know, is writing. Java or Scala code to process data, um, but then it's also providing uh, kind of mutual libraries for machine learning. So the same APIs that a data scientist is using to train the models, somebody on the, on the engineering side can you know use the same libraries and APIs to you know deploy them into production. Um, so for us, uh, you know, uh, having Hadoop and having Spark was kind of like the the pivotal moment where we were like, okay, this is the technology that we can, you know, build the thing that, you know, we really want to, which is MLeap, um, and kind of invest our time into that. Yeah, definitely. Now, um, you're talking about the same languages. Uh, is that specifically for Spark then? Were there other contenders or was Spark just the one way you could do this? Yeah, I think, I mean, there, there are definitely other uh, contenders. Um, 
and there are definitely other languages. I, but I, I think what made this, uh, you know, Spark very unique is kind of what I mentioned. You can do both data processing and like and large scale data processing, um, and also small scale data processing. There is, you know, everybody talks about big data, but you know, you can deploy Spark on very small clusters as well. Um, so having that combination of I can do my data processing, I can do my machine learning. And then the third thing that was missing is how do I deploy those models into production? I'd like to add, uh, Spark is a great platform for all those things that Mikhail was just saying. But um, the really cool thing about taking the Spark model of execution, these transformer-based pipelines, is that you can literally plug any other technology into it, potentially. Like, um, I would really like to make it so that you can execute like TensorFlow models within MLeap as well as Spark models, so that you can sort of mix and match all of these different libraries um, into your own pipelines eventually, and just uh, deploy any of them all on the same platform, essentially. Yeah, that's uh, TensorFlow is the Google uh, approach, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. That is that. That's future planning. Let's uh, let's go into that for a bit deeper in the interview. <laughs> let's not spoil it all right now. Uh, but yeah, uh, Mikael, you just mentioned the small and big data sizes. How much uh, data do you usually uh, work with for this uh, for the work you do at TrueCar? Yeah. Um, so when I would when I was at TrueCar, the data sets would range from you know gigabyte to uh, to terabyte to, and then we were. I think at I mean Howling can probably. Sp- Speak better to this what the data size is at TrueCar now, but um, I believe we were hitting like over two petabytes at some point. Yeah, so mostly there are a few different data sets that we have, and uh, most of the data sets that I work with are not very large. There may be 20 gigabytes of data, 30 gigabytes of data. So we're really trying to leverage the machine learning libraries and the the uh, the data processing libraries of Spark as opposed to the the big data capabilities of it. But then there are also some other data sets within the company that are petabytes of data, mainly all the images that we process. And there we really can leverage the um, sort of more big data-focused aspects of Spark. Yeah, apart from the machine learning, are you also looking at the SQL side and the graphics and whatever? Oh yeah, we use um, we use Spark SQL for everything pretty much um, okay. to prepare our data sets before we send them into the machine learning pipelines. Yeah, cool. I think that's yeah, that's the one big advantage uh, that Spark has, um, which is you know by having a SQL platform um, as well as you know the transformers and pipeline platform that Holland talked about, you can have a wide range of uh, you know skill levels uh, that can participate in the same environment. Uh, so even uh, analysts, you know, that are either just graduating college or a few years of work, you know, that no SQL, they can you know, essentially play in the same environment, uh, which I think is, it, I mean, it's, it's huge for a lot of the use case that I see. Yeah. And one of the other great things about Spark SQL is that, you know, we have data sets, data sets in a SQL server, MySQL servers, Postgres servers, Avro files, CSV files. Um, so we have all this uh these disparate data sources and Spark makes it really easy just to load them up and uh, and do joins on them and do whatever processing we need to. Yeah, that's the whole problem for big data and Hadoop, right? Having all kinds of data in one place and play with it as you like. Yep. Yeah. Okay, but so Spark solved a lot of problems except the one you have solved with MLeap. So can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. So kind of what I mentioned earlier, the way we 
um, kind of see this environment as in, in three pieces. Uh, one is your data processing, data pipelines. The second part is your uh, training uh, and testing of algorithms, uh, which you know Spark has been solving through uh, MLlib and now ML pipelines. And then this third piece uh, with MLeap is how do you take those algorithms uh, that are tr- uh, you know are trained in uh, NML or MLlib, and how do you separate them? Uh, away from the Spark context and deploy them out into a production environment. And actually, maybe I'll, I'll ask Colin to kind of talk about why separating them from the Spark context is so important. Yeah, so um, the real problem with the Spark context is that it's such a heavyweight data structure to have to carry around with you, right? Mm-hmm. It's this distributed context that's supposed to control your cluster when really a lot of the times when you want to deploy your um, machine learning models. Maybe you just want to deploy them to uh, an Android phone, or maybe you want to deploy them to a high-efficiency API server, or maybe you want to take your model and deploy it to Kafka or something like that. And if you're taking uh, the Spark context around with you, sometimes it can even make it impossible to deploy your models to those places with just out-of-the-box Spark ML pipelines. Um, so if you can take away this dependency from Spark and Spark data structures to actually execute your machine learning pipeline, you could potentially deploy it anywhere without any restrictions, and you could get very high efficiency with it. So, And that's the problem that we ran into, because we wanted to make a real-time uh, API server for scoring the price of used cars, and we found that uh, we couldn't actually do that if we had to use uh, Spark data frames and uh, out-of-the-box Spark transformers because it was too slow. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was, I was going to say on the, on the speed part, one little anecdote is, uh, so last summer, Holland and I, we had a group of uh, 10 interns uh, from uh, from Stanford and Berkeley, a lot of them were, you know, CS majors, some master students, and uh, I think a few PhD folks. And their assignment was, you know, for this is called the summer of code, which is, you know, you build out data pipelines and then figure out how can you make, um, you know, like maybe a mobile app that hits an algorithm that you train, you know, in Spark. And uh, what they did, I think, is an approach that a lot of folks take. Um, and we've talked to several companies and essentially have tried it, which is Let's let's just train our models in Spark and then just point an API server, you know, at the Spark context um, or something that's you know it's running Spark, and it it works. Um, but the what does kind of like limit you is the efficiency that Holland talked about mm-hmm. um, when you make the first request uh, to you know to your Spark context. It's probably it's going to take around one to two seconds to return a result, and then all the following ones, the concurrent ones, are you can probably get them down to 200 milliseconds, which is... Go ahead. uh, Yeah, yeah. So essentially, yeah, like one-off requests uh, coming from an API server. Um, What MLeap does, uh, and again, Hal, I'm going to defer to you to talk about exactly like the the speed metrics, um, but it's significantly, significantly faster um, execution. Is that first uh, weight you have just the, the spin up for all the? I know is it a Java context or whatever the, the virtual machine around the whole thing that needs to be loaded? Is that what you're talking about? 
for the uh, first request, yeah, you need to start up the the Spark context, which involves starting up uh, workers and and uh, just getting everything ready to process your data, because you know Spark uh, does everything lazily, so yep. it doesn't actually immediately start up your Spark context until you actually need to use it. Yeah. Now, one question I would have if you talk about removing the Spark context, uh, you're removing stuff. So does that mean that Mleap has less functionality than Spark has when you actually try to score it? Currently, it does have less functionality. There are maybe 40, 40 or so odd transformers in um, Spark. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're talking about just machine learning, Transformers. There's about forty or fifty in Spark, maybe, and currently in MLeap, there's only around fifteen of them. So there definitely is a gap, a gap in functionality currently, but uh, we're working quite diligently to to fill that gap in with the remaining transformers. Now, if you're talking about all the SQL functionality and the MapReduce functionality that Spark has, uh, none of that is in MLeap, and none of it's intended to be in MLeap. Mm, yes, because please. Uh, it would be, uh, it would be quite, it. The, quite a difficult task to do that and make it work properly. <laughs> but there is a kind of a, you know, MLEAP is very specific, uh, like as far as which problem it's trying to solve. Uh-huh. Uh, we're not focusing on how do we, you know, invent a new way to train models mm-hmm. um, or perform uh, data transformations. It's more how do you take uh, an algorithm that's already been trained, you know, whether it's your linear regression, logistic regression, random forest, or any of the other, the other 15 that uh, Holland mentioned, and how do you make them super efficient at execution time? So if you have uh, a vector, you know, features um, coming through an API server, how do you get back a request? How do you essentially get a sub-millisecond response on those? Yeah, thanks. Oh, that was what we were looking for. Thank you. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things like in this particular space where I, I hear about this, um, you know, the, the technology that's been around for a while, I guess, is, is PMML. I mean, how does MLEAP? You know, compare with PMML. Where where is kind of MLEAP stronger or or even weaker? You know, when would you choose to use one or the other? So I would say that um, MLEAP has two really big differentiating factors between it and uh, PMML, and uh, uh, the first one is the serialization format that they both use. So PMML is XML based, and um, MLEAP is based on protobufs and JSON, and the real advantage that you get by using protobuf and json as opposed to xml is uh with something like a random forest model where you have a very large machine learning model mm-hmm. and if you try to encode that with xml you're going to end up with uh, a huge huge file potentially larger than you can actually load whereas if you're using something like protobufs you can actually compact the data quite easily and you can fit it into a much smaller uh, size file so that's the first difference is the serialization format. Uh, the second difference is sort of the uh, approach to handling your data. We're modeling everything based off of Spark. So our way of transforming the data is based off of these transformer pipelines. So you build, you have something like a data frame, and then you're just adding columns to it with every single step. Um, PIML is a little bit different than that. It has data mining phases and it has um, actual scoring phases. And you can sort of um, emulate a transformer pipeline with PMML, but it's definitely not the natural thing to do. 
So we decided to go with a, a slightly different serialization format than PIML uses and also a different execution model. Got it. Makes sense. Thanks. Yep. Uh, okay. <laughs> Just checking if Dave wanted to continue with uh, what he was thinking about. No, no, I'm good. Yeah, you made me lose my train of thought now, so I have to continue. <laughs> oh, <but now laughs> Always happy to derail. <laughs> it's a good question. It comes up, I think, every, yeah, every time we've talked to people about every time. Uh, yep. and it comes up. And the funny thing is that uh I mean we've we've used uh PIMO before in the past and I think that everybody that uses it, it's there's a lot of infrastructure that has to happen. Um to essentially get PEML out into production as well and to make it work properly, especially once you deviate away from uh, linear models. Um, if you're looking at something like SVMs or even like uh, gradient-boosted regression trees, uh, there's quite a bit of work that you have to put into PEML. Okay, yeah. so, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just saying, yeah, that, that makes makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, the sort of areas where people start talking about it are things like where they're using... Um, you know, maybe they've got people familiar with SAS or something like that, and they want to generate the models in SAS, but then go ahead and run them in Storm or something like that. And PMML being being the sort of the, the bridging point there. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you guys done any kind of uh, performance uh, comparison between the models in PMML or M- against MLLeap or MLeap? No, we haven't actually done any comparison between PMML and MLeap, but that would be a really great one to do. <laughs> Thank you for the idea. <laughs> I think the first problem is that most people I talk about I talk to about using PMML say, "Oh my God, don't do that." Apparently, it's pretty hard to use, as you've explained. It is very. I, you know, I tried implementing something as simple as a string indexer with PMML as a proof of concept for if we could use PMML instead of um, inventing something new. And uh, I spent a few days on it, and it was very difficult to even figure out how to get something as basic as that uh, functioning. Um, whereas in MLeap, it, it, implementing string indexer would literally take maybe thirty or forty minutes to do. So yeah, that's actually a good a good question. If I was deciding, okay, I need I have a model trained in Spark, I want to put it in production. Uh, let's use MLeap. How much time would I spend from going to I don't know, a GitHub server, downloading it, and using it? Well, if it's all out of the box uh, Spark transformers and ones that are supported with MLeap, um, you could download MLeap and you could follow along the uh, little tutorial that I put up there, and it would take you maybe twenty minutes your first time because you don't know what you're doing the first time. <laughs> and then once you get a good grasp on how it functions, it, it's um, it's literally just one or two lines of code. Well, one line of code to convert to MLeap, and then another line of code to serialize. Um, to MLeap serialization format and start using it. And um, I'm, I'm even making it easier because now I'm making it so that you can directly serialize Spark models to MLeap's format and then just load it up in MLeap somewhere else. So um, it's very easy to add to your project. Yeah, I saw you guys demonstrated at Hadoop Summit in Dublin. That took about five minutes to have the web servers up and running, so that was cool. Oh yeah, it can be it can be as fast as you uh, as you can imagine. <laughs> Faster than you can type. <laughs> so, uh, who would you think should be looking at MLeap? I guess you'll say everybody, but does it have any specific target audience in mind here, or or vice versa? There are people that shouldn't look at MLeap. 
Yeah, um, I think our initial target audience. Uh, I mean, it's it's two groups. Well, potentially three. Uh, the first one is uh, is data scientists that essentially want to be able to put up uh, proof of concepts, right? I, I don't think we're advocating you know data scientists should be writing you know production level code or standing up API servers, but um, Emily essentially helps them set up, you know, a small, you know, virtual machine, run it, uh, and to essentially show, you know, engineering like what their models, you know, can do. Um, I kind of get more buy-in from the rest of the company or whoever they're building the models for. I think that that's that's the first target audience. Uh, the second target audience is engineers who essentially spend their time rewriting these models, essentially hard coding a lot of the models. Um, and we see that you know across a lot of organizations where somebody trains something as simple as a linear regression and then you have an engineer that essentially uh, takes all the features, uh, writes all the code on how to implement every feature and then you know codes in what uh, the coefficients for each variable are and then essentially doing a dot product. And then when the new model is ready, Essentially, okay, let's uh, rewrite the code to do another linear regression. So that, that's another big part that we're trying to simplify with with Emily. Um, and then I think the third audience is essentially your, you know, your C-level executives, uh, your CTOs, uh, uh, your CFOs, who you know are investing a lot of you know money to, or who are shifting to Spark, who are shifting you know to Hadoop. Um, because they want to kind of uh, get a lot more out of their data, um, so essentially it's a solution for them to essentially how do you go from having data to having models to having them out live in production, so they can actually show the value throughout the whole stack. Uh, great, actually, I know of a, of a fourth group of people that will love you, and that's the, the pre-sales people of uh, Hadoop distribution vendors, because it gives us a very nice way of demonstrating how this works very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep, that's that's the other group. Uh, but I think uh, to your other question of who shouldn't use this, uh, it's a little weird saying like you shouldn't use this. Like if if you're as an individual, you're very interested um, in machine learning and you know getting them out to production, like more power to you, please, you know, learn. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not, again, meant for data processing, right? It's not, again, kind of like I mentioned, not meant to replace, uh, you know, like any MapReduce functionality or Spark data frames. Um, so if you're like an ETL person, like this is probably very far removed from what you're doing on a daily basis. But yeah, 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 makes sense, makes sense. So looking at the future, what are you looking at adding? Or you mentioned a couple of things. So there's a few things that we want to add in the future, and uh, uh, I'll read you off that list right now. Um, one of the things that Spark is currently working on is separating out a linear algebra library uh, into a separate library that doesn't have nearly as many dependencies on other Spark core libraries. So we want to unify that with Emleap. Um, we want to build out a Python and R interface because, as Mikhail was saying, one of our target audiences is data scientists, and a lot of data scientists are much more comfortable in Python and R than they are in Scala. Um, one of the big things that we really want to do um, in the next, uh, I'd say, six months to a year is to bring MLeap outside of the JVM so that you can deploy to embedded systems or iOS devices or literally anywhere that you could think of in computing. We want you to be able to deploy these models to. 
Um, and uh, uh, obviously the last one is that we want full su- support for all of the Spark transformers because right now there is that gap of about 30 transformers that we haven't implemented yet. Uh, just out of curiosity, the 15 you have chosen, those are because those are the most popularly used or how did you decide? Uh, so a, a combination of things. Um, uh, the core, maybe eight or nine, the first eight or nine that we built out were because we were using them at TrueCar and we absolutely needed them. Good and reason. Then, <laughs> yep. So, you know, a good proof of concept there. <laughs> and then we had, I've actually had some people email me and say, hey, can you build out um, uh, min-max scaling or we really need logistic regression for what doing or somebody asked me if uh, we could implement support vector machines and so um, I said sure to all of those and I um, put them up as GitHub issues and I, I just uh, I worked on them and knocked them out for people so um, I, I really want Mleap to um, fulfill the needs of uh, uh, anyone who wants to use it so if you want to use it and it's not doing something that it should be doing um, then we want to be very responsive and make it do uh, what anyone wants it to do, pretty much. So you're very community-driven, then? It, it, that's what we're trying to be, and that's what we have been so far, even though it's a small but growing community. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of interest in the whole uh, MLEAP uh, project. Uh, yeah, do, go ahead. I was going to say one thing to also mention is I, I think one of the goals is to get uh, yeah more people involved uh, especially when it comes to expanding the list of transformers that we support um, so we do have a few folks that are helping us out uh, from a couple of different organizations uh, we have two folks that are working right now on uh, on decision tree regressions uh, as, well, as well as decision tree classification so that will be another two transformers that we're gonna you know gonna add to Emily pretty soon but that, that is a big goal, essentially, to get uh, to get more committers uh, looking, testing, and you know, working on Emily models. Uh, are you looking at certain uh, looking for certain profiles specifically? More programmers, more documenters. I mean, go ahead. It's your forum. Shout out. Yeah, I, th- oh. I think <laughs> yeah, both. We haven't really. We do need better documentation. I think. I think that's one thing that we haven't focused on. Um, like the code is very well documented. I think we have very good uh, README and tutorials uh, for how to set up and deploy Mleap. Uh, but that is, I think, one part that we need to invest a little bit more on. Yeah. Well, that's usually the case with uh, very busy projects that are community-driven. You want to make it work first, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's right. Now, as the project grows, are you looking at becoming a, your own Apache project or some other kind of organization around it? Or just you're fine how it is? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think, well, so Mleap, uh, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. So Mleap is meant to be, right, the the open source project that helps you deploy your models out into the production world. Uh, but there are definitely opportunities, you know, to build uh, an organization around it. Um, you know, we have several folks that are, are interested in working on this, especially if we want to take it outside the JVM and help deploy, you know, at organizations. Uh that part's very difficult to do as an open source project. Yeah. Um, so yes, there, there's definitely talks, plans of like, how do we build, um, you know, a, an environment around Mleap? How do we deploy, like, um, you know, help facilitate deployment of API servers? How do we make that easier? Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, the, the whole taking it out of a JVM is something that when I heard your talk at the Hadoop Summit, uh, that woke me really up because uh, Dave and I have been working with Apache NiFi uh, for a while now. It's a kind of an event processing system. And one of the questions we get a lot from customers is, how can I put my machine learning algorithm in there to make decisions and to choose where a certain event should go? Mm-hmm. And yeah, PMML is just no no way to do it there. It's way too heavy. And uh, yeah, if you can get this out of the uh, JVM, that would be really, really useful. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I've already started building prototypes out for it, and I've gotten a few transformers working outside of the JVM, and it's definitely doable, and it's something that I really want to work on. Um, but man, there's so much to do with this project, <laughs> and and like Mikhail's saying, there's so many opportunities with it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's difficult to to decide where to put all of your time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, time. Who has time? <laughs> well, excellent. Thank you for this. Uh, we're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we're going to more depth on how MLeap works, uh, the internals of it, how we install it, things like that. Mikhail and Holland, thank you very much. And we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Great. Thank you. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this first part of the interview with Mikhail and Holland. Next episode, we will feature the, the second part of this interview, where we'll be digging a little deeper in the MLeap technology. Mark your calendar, because you will not want to miss it. After the music, we'll be back with questions from the audience. Welcome back. In the last section of the podcast, we answer questions we receive from you, our glorious listeners. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the podcast, send us an email to podcast at roaringelephant.org, use our Hadoopcast Twitter handle, or go to the website www.roaringelephant.org, where you can find out more information about this podcast, uh, including the contact form where you can submit those questions. So I think, Jon, the first question's for you. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's not really a question, but uh, if you've listened to the earlier episodes, you might remember that I was talking about episode 12 not showing up on iTunes, and uh, John was actually nice enough to let us know that for him it was actually working, which made it even less understandable for me, I'm guessing you're right with being iTunes critic there. But uh, through searching for a bit more, I've actually found a podcast management page you can use if you're on iTunes. And I've been successfully been able to refresh our feed on iTunes. And uh, at least on my end now, episode 12 does figure on the list. Um, I'm hoping it's okay for everybody now. So just a, a shout out. Uh, if you're having problems seeing episode 12 on iTunes, let me know because I'm a bit annoyed by this whole little issue and I want to make sure it's fixed. If everybody can see episode 12, then just ignore this question. That was all I had. Next question was from you, and that's a big one. Indeed. So uh, I had a message coming or a question coming from Ewan um, saying basically that we're we're advocating a lot of NiFi. We are. I think it's very cool. You should too. Um, And uh, he'd used a lot of similar tools uh, before with a similar sort of approach. Um, and, uh, you know, his comment is that it, it works well when you're kind of prototyping, but maybe not so easy if you're doing unit tests or continuous integration um, and, you know, how it, how it operates in production. And, you know, what are our thoughts on that? And, you know, what, what's our feedback on, on using NiFi in production? Um, so I think that there's a couple of things I would kind of mention on this front. The first is uh, you're right in the sense that uh, NiFi doesn't behave, in this, uh, at least by default, in the same way that a lot of traditional 
um, sort of tools would do. So that whole kind of development, test, production, staging isn't actually there by default. So, you know, NiFi does allow you to make changes to the running flow on the fly. And I get it. Like not everybody is looking for tools that will actually do that. In fact, they actively want to prevent that. So if you take a look on, on GitHub, you should find something called NiFi API Deploy. Uh, this actually allows you to hook up um, a NiFi environment and actually you can keep your, you know, your, your NiFi template, your models essentially uh, under uh, source control of some description. And actually you can check those out and deploy them using the NiFi API. So you can actually oh. create that um, you know, dev test production staging, even continuous integration of redeploying, uh, you know, brand new versions of that using this uh, through the REST API. So that's kind of the the first piece I would mention around that. Just a quick question there. Yeah, does it also work with a multi uh, server NiFi setup? And don't mean multi server in uh, uh, bigger throughput, but if you have a hub and spoke model with a, a couple of NiFi installations feeding each other. Yeah, so you definitely have to uh, expand on the existing environment. You'd have to hook multiple, um, you know, multiple calls of this NiFi API deploy. So basically, it's one set of deployments per uh, cluster, which kind of makes sense anyway, because you'd have the you'd have the NiFi site to site protocol going from one NiFi cluster to another. So from your your spoke to your hub, and actually the site to site protocol would. Uh, take care of the caching in between there as well. So while you were redeploying your hub, you know, the site to site from your spoke would be caching the data up. Then when the hub came back up, obviously data would start to flush through. So yeah, that that's how you'd handle that. Cool. Um, the, the kind of second side of it was really uh, feedback on um, NiFi uh, in production. And uh, I have a great answer for this because there's uh organization that I've only been working with for about the last um, probably the last six months or so um, and they have been using NiFi for just under a year um, they are using it in production it's it's part of a a solution a security solution stack that they offer um, to customers to paying customers it's a production environment and that their comment was actually that the NiFi piece was the most stable piece of their entire deployment their entire solution stack um, and honestly I, I I cannot think of a of, of a better <laughs> sort of accolade to give a, a technology like NiFi again you know NiFi has been around for 10 years it, it's it's been um People often talk about technology as being battle tested. Well, NiFi actually has been battle tested. You know, look at where it came from with the NSA. Uh, it's it's operated under some pretty stringent conditions. Um, you know, I think don't don't get confused by thinking this is just a a sort of a, a WYSIWYG front end that you know it, it's good for building proof of concepts, but it's not going to scale or it's not going to work in 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 production. You know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of very smart stuff happening underneath that uh, that UI that I think it's it's well worth kind of continuing to investigate. So yeah, that would be that would be my response. I don't know whether you have anything else to, to add to that, Jon. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally agree with what you're saying. Of course, I mean, we have to agree on the same podcast. 
<laughs> but for me, actually, his mention of uh, continuous integration, I see things like Naive as the next logical step. I mean, if you look at uh, the past where we went from the real, there's a four-letter acronym for that, from having different environments and then passing from one to the other in the waterfall model. Then you had the whole DevOps movement, and now you have continuous integration. Yeah, next step, logically, would be, well, forget about DevTest and just do release all the time and work on your production uh, system, which of course means that the technology you're using needs to have things built in that make that possible. I think NIFA is a pretty good example of that. You can just make a development uh, fork on a stream, work on it till it works, and then just flip over the switch and uh, start using that stream. So that just works very nicely. And especially for these kind of streaming things, I actually think that having a dev test environment is detrimental. Because the thing you really want to test is, will it fall over under stress? And yeah. typically, people will not be able to test something in a dev, in a dev, uh, dev test situation with the same amount of uh, events happening in the real-world scenario. It's always going to be a simulation, some kind of script that just puts up junk events to see if the, the, the logic of the thing works. But will it fall over under stress? You have no idea at that point. And I've actually yeah. seen uh, systems where that actually made a problem, uh, prop, uh, things that worked well in dev tests, and then they go into production on a live event, so there's no real redo, and it just falls over because uh, the number of sockets uh, opened were not available because the things that were testing were usually opening one socket and then sending a lot of messages, while this was a mobile application, and every mobile connection was a, sep- was a separate socket connection, and their web front-end or the API front-end simply didn't have enough sockets available. Yeah, I mean, uh, it goes back to some of the basics, I think. If you're testing some of these things, you need to test them at scale. You need to test them at production scale. And often, the only way to do that is in production. So, yeah, yeah it gets yeah, harder and harder because of the whole big data thing, the whole velocity and all the other Vs. It's just very hard to fake those things because you don't have a second Earth planet. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, I, I mean, that's why... Uh, if you if you listen to some of our previous episodes, that's why when we're talking about you know actually dev and test being part of um, the same data lake, that's not to say that you won't have separate development and test clusters, but they're usually for testing infrastructure. Whereas actually developers are going to be developing on you know on a cluster that's of the size that they can actually do some proper testing against. Yeah. Yeah, the whole security thing, governance thing becomes important there because you have to make sure that those two environments, if you like, are still kind of separated from from each other. Yeah. But uh, yeah, these new these new tools like Hadoop and uh, NiFi, they make it possible to work that way. And to be honest, it's pretty much the only way you can actually do these kind of things. Yeah. Uh, and just to make sure it's, it's clear that I'm not a total NiFi fanboy, the other thing I would <laughs> oh, yes, add you are. is, well, I'm okay, maybe a little <laughs> bit. But the other thing I would add is that NiFi is still missing one key piece of functionality in my mind, and that's an undo button. <laughs> I mean, there is no undo button. Really, guys? Come on. Undo. Just do it. Uh, yeah. But yeah. No, I, th- I think, I don't agree. I mean, you're right, they don't have an undo button, but I don't think you should have an undo button there. You should simply have a, a production stream, fork off uh, from the production stream to do your development, and when you finish with, you're happy with that new fork, you flip over the switch, but you don't remove the other one. So doing your undo should just be flipping over the switch again to the other stream. Yeah. It makes you, it needs, it, it, it desires a certain, uh, how do you call it, uh, what's the word, um, you have to keep yourself in check, make sure you do things properly. Yeah. But um, but, then, but then we're back to people are always the problem, aren't they? 
I mean, it's it's rarely yourself, it rarely, Come on. Well, well, of course, <laughs> apart from me, I'm never the problem. But uh, but apart from that, you know, it, people in the loop are typically the problem. And I'm you're right, but then there's always going to be the person that uh, you know that has the right level of access and the wrong level of knowledge and, you know, does the equivalent of an RM minus RF on the data lake or, you know, that accidentally... Which doesn't have an undo either, by the way. Pardon? Uh, RM minus R doesn't have an undo either, as far as I know. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that should have an undo as well. Well, unless, you know, unless they skip trash and all that other stuff. Yeah, it's all about process and discipline, right? It is, it is. And there is no substitute for process and discipline. And that's why we have all these certifications in the world, like ISO and PCI and whatever. Yeah, yeah. And all of the uh, product-based certifications that various vendors uh, are happy to get you to pay to do as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, the whole common sense thing, right? Yeah, but as a friend of mine says, (laughs) common sense is not all that common. Anyway, I hope hope that uh, answers your question, Ewan. And uh, yeah, uh, I uh, I enjoyed that question and I enjoyed answering it. Yeah, it was a good question. Thanks for that. So, unless you have anything else to add, that's it for me. And then it's it for us. It's about all we have time for today. We do hope you've enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data again. We will be back in two weeks' time with a new episode, and then you will have the second part of the M-Leap interview with Holland and Mikhail. Do stay tuned. It's a very good continuation of what you heard today. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, send us your questions, and please give us a five-star review on iTunes, even though Dave doesn't like iTunes. Now, we do have a special question here, because after 16, well, now 17 episodes, uh, our iTunes page still hasn't got any listener reviews, which I think is a shame. Uh, we've had steady positive feedback when we meet listeners uh, in the real world and by via email and contact form. So I would like to ask if uh, some of you would just be so kind and put a little review on the iTunes page. Uh, just talk about what you think is good, maybe even what's bad. And the whole idea being that people who haven't listened to us yet, when they go to the iTunes page, they can use those reviews to just have an idea of what we're about, uh, how the uh, episodes work, how it sounds, how it is. So if you have a minute, please take some time and put a, bit, a message there we would really appreciate it of course you can still always contact us via the feedback form on the website or via email at podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts comments criticisms and other feedback until next episode my name is john and my name is dave and we look forward to talking to you in two weeks time all right take care goodbye